Jan, what do you think about when you hear the word euthanasia? Well, I think of uh, young people on the Asian subcontinent. <laughs> and, okay, in all seriousness, I think of putting animals to death in shelters, for example, or I think of, you know, when it comes to human beings, I think of, you know, Nazi experimentation and, and things of that nature. What if I use the term physician-assisted suicide? But I, you know, I think of people in extreme pain, perhaps elderly people who are, you know, on the edge of, of passing away and they're suffering greatly and you just want to ease their suffering at the end of life. That's often what we talk about and think about when the words are used, physician-assisted suicide. But now on our northern border, we have something else going on. In Canada, we have a series of both Supreme Court actions and legislative actions since 2015 that have opened up a whole new horizon of state-funded and assisted suicide. There's new hope tonight for Canadians suffering with intolerable pain. A bill expanding access to assisted death has received royal assent. Those who aren't near their natural death now have the right to seek medical assistance in dying. They've come up with a term for this, M-A-I-D, another acronym. We're not supposed to use the term suicide or even physician-assisted suicide, let alone euthanasia. And this has really taken off as a major cause of death in Canada. The reason I'd like to talk about it today is because in my home state in Virginia, we have legislation currently pending to make this medically assisted suicide legal. We have 10 states that have already approved this. And there's another 18 that are considering this legislation to make it allowed for the state to functionally kill people. And, you know, in my home country of Canada, you know, this has been something that since 2015, actually, I think that's when the act was passed. And it wasn't really clear. Right? Initially, the idea was that people who were expected to die might find a solution to their pain quicker through this. But that, you know, quickly escalated. And this law was actually amended to say that it's no longer just these sorts of people. Like, basically, anybody who can make a case that they are ready to die can get it. And then there was legislation put in place to support this and provide a budget uh, from, the, from the national government to support these advocacy groups for the rights of patients to participate in MAID. And then these groups then became the operators, the groups that actually provide this service. So we had a strange situation where there was basically a, an advocacy group that decided that this was an issue that needed to be brought up. And then uh, the, the national legislature acted on it, allocated a budget, and then that same group became engaged in actually operating that program for the state. What's kind of interesting about this is that there aren't physicians associated with that. In fact, the American Medical Association has come out yet again with a very clear and unambiguous statement that physicians should not be involved in terminating people's lives and providing this kind of assistance. But in Canada, we've had this lobbying organization that's advocated for this, for ostensibly for patients' rights, that doesn't involve physicians. It's all been done in kind of a parallel non-medical provider uh, world uh, led by a advocacy group. But 
I mean, it is, I believe, uh, medical doctors and also nurse practitioners that are actually doing it, if I, if I understand correctly. And just to make a point of it, Canada is the only place in the world where nurse practitioners can actually enact this medically assisted suicide. Usually it's only physicians. But it, the, the, the really bizarre thing about this is that it's grown. It's been rising every year. In the last year that we have data for it, 2022, it was 13,500 odd people. Overall, it's about 31,000 of young people, I think 18 to 45. That number has been growing substantially every year. And there's a very broad range of categories. And we seem to be seeing a slippery slope develop in Canada where there's efforts to continue to expand this uh, population of eligibility. And so it's now being attempted to be broadened out to youth, to drug abusers, to people who are depressed, people who have become financially indigent. They just don't have the money. And so they just want to get state assistance to take their own lives. It's a very odd situation. Amir Farsoud has applied for medically assisted dying, known as MAID. He lives in constant agony due to a back injury, but has started the process for end of life because his rooming house is up for sale and he can't find anywhere else to live that he can afford. He barely survives on Ontario disability support payments, which are just over $1,200 a month. He doesn't want to die, but being homeless is not an option. It has an intrinsic conflict of interest in that technically it's saving money for the state by having these people participate in what's essentially state-assisted suicide. And indeed, that's actually reflected in reports, state reports. I've, I've actually seen two. One of them was saying $70 million odd dollars a year in savings, and another one $100 million in potential savings. But here's the thing, right? In Canada, there's actually advocates, and there's one instance that I'm aware of where someone who was COVID vaccine injured was offered MAID as a treatment right. for that injury, right? right? Bizarre. And so a number of these other countries where there is some level of this medically assisted suicide, there's some kind of safeguards. There, For example, there isn't Advocacy for it isn't allowed in certain yes, states, right? Exactly. You can't be a medical practitioner that says, "Hey, you know, here's your here's your series of treatment options," and you know, death. But is that one is of them. happening in Canada. Correct. Yeah, people are being offered this medically assisted death as an option when they come into the emergency room, uh, whereas in Belgium there is a monthly review board. They treat each of these cases as exceptional, requiring oversight and review. And those that participate in it are, have to have counseling. There's checks and balances for the physicians that are involved. Um, and each of these medically assisted suicide cases in the case of Belgium has a dossier associated with it because they're very concerned about the bioethical considerations and these conflicts of interest. But in Canada, it seems to be kind of a situation where everything, anything goes. Uh, and it doesn't have to be that they're facing imminent death. They, they, the the, the uh, inclusion criteria for accessing these federal funds for assisted death or assisted suicide are quite broad. Well, there's one example that comes to mind. I mean, I terrible, terrible situation. The guy has hearing loss, 
You know, that's the symptom. He's not getting treatment. Um, he's not taking drugs. He doesn't have any sort of hearing aid or implant. And he's basically dead within a month of being uh, applying for it. Yeah, he essentially says, I have hearing loss. That's an inconvenience. I no longer want to live anymore. I don't want to use any of the available technology to mitigate my hearing loss. I just want to die. And so I'm going to fill out the form, and the state says has no problem with that. It goes straight through, and, in, and a month later, like you say, he's dead. It's so convenient for the state and for other interested parties to just allow a citizen to terminate their life with state assistance. And the paradox is, if you happen to be, remember when, if we think back to your original response, what do you think about euthanasia? And in physician-assisted suicide, you were thinking about people that are chronically ill, in severe pain, near end of life. That's kind of what most of us would think about. These people that are often in that position are not mentally competent to give informed consent. And technically in Canada, they're not allowed to participate in the program. The paradox is that you have to be mentally competent to give informed consent, unlike with the jab, uh, in order to participate in the program and allow the state to kill you. And if you are in a coma or otherwise compromised, then you can't give informed consent and the state can't activate the program. And the other thing that bothers me about it is when I was trained, we were taught that if the patient comes in, presents to the physician or presents in the emergency room and they are determined to be suicidal, then they are by definition um, mentally compromised and there must be interventions. That was a justification for institutionalization, for treatment, for their depression and suicidal ideation. And now we've cut all that away saving a bunch of money, at least they have in, in Canada right now, and they apparently want to do it in my home state in Virginia. Uh, and we're just going to substitute, hey, take this injection, take this pill, and uh, it'll all be over. And by the way, you'll no longer be a burden to the state financially or to the hospital system or to your insurer or whatever. The, the only contradiction I can see here uh, with, with a lot of these other trends is that uh, the pharmaceutical industrial complex is going to be uh, deprived of the opportunity to treat these people chronically for a long period of time with all the revenue that that generates. So we haven't heard yet from big pharma about what they think concerning these medically assisted suicide shortcuts for people that have chronic disease. Well, so that's actually kind of interesting because looking at the WHO and the UN, you know, for example, on the gender affirming care side, WHO is pushing hard for that particular model, right? Which is, you know, frankly, in my, you know, I, immoral. Uh, thank you, doctor. <laughs> right, right, exactly. But on the other hand, you know, the UN is actually advocating, I think, as you as you suggested against it. So, you know, th this is like a very dark world that we're imagining here, right? Where, you know, you can imagine lobbyists from you know these big pharma companies that benefit from chronic uh, disease, right? Sort of arguing against this because their bottom line would be harmed. I, I I don't even know what to think. Yeah, it's this is a really complex landscape. I think we can both agree on that. And if all that wasn't over the top enough, I've also learned that there's this German euthanasia association that manages these euthanasia clinics in Germany, 
And during the COVID crisis, apparently they had a policy that if you weren't vaccinated, if you didn't have your vaccine passport, you weren't allowed to use the euthanasia facilities to take your own life. You had to be vaccinated in order to kill yourself. Well, that's a mind warp. Um, <laughs> there's one thing that I wanted to mention, uh, which is, you know, there's also this increasing living in a virtual reality. There's increasing numbers of people, especially young people, that don't, it's a lot harder for them to ultimately see the consequences of their actions because they're this virtual reality they live in, they don't have to face those. Or to turn it around, by living in this virtual reality construct and wedded to their uh, cell phone and what they're seeing on TikTok, for instance, just to take one example, is driving them towards a lot of these dysfunctional psychologic behaviors and, and um, self-images. You know, what we have children rampantly, this is probably part of what's behind the transgender movement, young people are being exposed to what they perceive as the new norm based on what's happening in social media that they're interacting with. And they're saying to themselves, I'm not as beautiful, I'm not as good, I don't have all these advantages of these people that I'm being exposed to on a daily basis. And if I can't be like them, why should I continue living? Right. And and that's, you know, we're, we're driving them towards a place where they're living this kind of quasi-virtual existence with unreal expectations, disconnected from the people around them, disconnected from their family, and then suddenly they have some event and uh, they're left with no resources, no connectivity, no, no resilience. And uh, the state says, hey, just fill out this form and, uh, and we can end your pain. Take care of your problem. And this has developed a whole culture online and uh, in reality, supporting this MADE initiative in Canada and worldwide. And there's a website associated with this where you can find uh, death cafes and participate online and with others in uh, discussing about this kind of assisted suicide. According to the website that hosts this, there's over 1,400 of these in Canada and over 17,000 worldwide of these virtual associations and physical associations that congregate in various locations to talk about committing suicide. Last breaths are sacred. When I imagine my final days, I see bubbles. I see the ocean. I see music. Even now, as I seek help to end my life, there is still so much beauty. You just have to be brave enough to see it. It's very much cult behavior. And I think that this is something that is really kind of symptomatic of the disassociation that's happening within the broader culture right now. To take this to the extent that people are actively talking about how they can commit suicide and, and kind of celebrating it by having these meetups and these websites and in you know contact groups, support groups, etc. 
all wrapped around this legislation in Canada, which apparently has kind of become the worldwide hub for state-assisted suicide. Astonishing. And these are, you know, these are not just virtual meetups, but actually in some cases they're physical meetups. You're reminding me of this BC psychiatrist, this doctor who's very, you know, very pro-medically-assisted um, uh, suicide. He's saying, you know, this is, this is something that provides everyone with dignity. People have a right to choose to die. Um, and furthermore, he's, he never agreed to sign the Hippocratic Oath, if I understand it correctly. I mean, it makes sense that all of this would go together, right? But I just, I, it doesn't sound like the practice of medicine to me. This, this is another thread that bothers me a lot. And there, there are people in the bioethics space that can and will justify almost anything uh, if, if they have some interest in this. It's, it's part of this new reality where there's no objective truth. We've rejected that there is objective truth. We've rejected that there is any objective assessment of morality and everything becomes subjective and based on what you feel at the time. And, and this physician actually uses that kind of language, that this is what these people are feeling and therefore they should have these rights. And the other problem that's gonna be picked out by a lot of our audience is this theory that there is an interest in uh, population control. And uh, this is gonna play straight into that narrative because this is absolutely allowing the government of Canada to facilitate a reduction, as we said before, in key cohorts that are less desirable for one reason or another. They're, they're a burden to the state because of their medical care. They're a burden to the state because they're indigent. They're a burden to the state because they're depressed and they're not contributing to the economic activity and growth in the GDP. And all these people can be basically taken off uh, the payroll of and the responsibility of the kind of socialist government of Canada. It's all too convenient. It, it, it's, it's a very dystopian kind of uh, future as the slippery slope continues. So a number of these stories that have been covered uh, in the Canadian press and frankly in the U.S. press as well involve a parent frantically trying to stop their child from actually making this happen in their life. I, I find that promising. You know, there's, um, now there's this hold on young people being kind of you know, initiated into this program or being allowed to use this program. Maybe things are going to turn around a little bit, but I think it'll take a lot of work. I agree. There are signs of Canada waking up to a lot of these new social trends and average people resisting it. And as you mentioned, parents in particular, feeling that they have been uh, taken out of the loop uh, and supplanted by the state. This is really another one of those stories where the state has interjected itself into the family. In this case, in the most egregious way, by uh, getting involved in the death decision, one of the most key decisions that any family member is going to make. Uh, and there's also a strong theologic or religious component to this. The state is injecting itself into a decision that historically has been more linked to the church 
into the role of the church in supporting the family and supporting family members and supporting the death course, the death decision and uh, the uh, transition from life to death. And, and we have this impersonal state structure now being interjected into that in which you don't have any of that learning and transition. People forget that death is not only involving the, the person who will become deceased, but it involves the whole extended family and all those around them. How a person dies has all kinds of impacts on the surrounding society. And we're just making it as if that's trivial and uh, can just be short-circuited by filling out a form and having a bureaucrat approve an injection. Something that just struck me, right? I, I'm, I'm aware that over 60% of these MAID cases are people who have some kind of cancer. So it's a significant part, right? But what's, what also strikes me is that there's, you know, all sorts of methods of treating cancer that we've been recently discovering. Like, you know, for one example that just jumps to my mind is, you know, combination double-blind RCT study, right? Randomized control trial. We've got vitamin D, omega-3 fatty acids, and a bit of exercise. That will lower your likelihood of contracting cancer by 60%. That's a lot of people who don't need even to get the cancer in the first place. Yeah, it's, this is another instance where we're going straight to the pharmaceutical closet for a solution to a broader social crisis. Mm. We're offering these people a quick out by taking a drug. Just take this drug and you'll clock out. You'll have no more stress or pain. It'll resolve all your problems. This is another case of substituting pharmaceuticals for uh, you know, a variety of other options that can improve people's lives. It's a paradox. I think this is probably where we need to pivot a little bit. You know, we've had some great discussions on the farm. One I'm thinking of in particular is about supplements. We talked a little bit about vitamin D in this episode. Why don't we jump to that? Yes, let's talk about supplements that extend your life instead of cutting it short. Herbal and dietary supplements can be enormously beneficial for us, particularly as we age and our gut doesn't absorb nutrients as well. Although we're lucky in that our supplement market is not regulated very heavily by the FDA, it means that we as a consumer have to be careful and make sure that we're getting supplements that are high quality and made in America. Um, how do I know that a product is safe? Third party verification. What's most important is that it's not the manufacturer that's doing the certification, it's some separate party. The two that are most commonly used in the United States are US Pharmacopeia, or USP, and the National Sanitary Foundation, or NSF. So you should look for NSF or USP on the label when you're buying your products to ensure that they are not adulterated, that means they don't have contaminants in them that they're pure, that they have the amount of the ingredient that they say they do, and that they're potent, that the stuff is active. And you know, the other thing that's really important is dosing, because there is no government organization that's gonna tell you the correct dose. You have to figure it out yourself, and that means doing some research. It means going to pubmed.gov, which is the site of peer-reviewed literature, and really be careful with the dosing, because it's easy to overdose. So what is a young man like me uh, supposed to be taking then? 
So what we do in thinking about how to approach this is we have four main buckets that we think about with supplements. Things that help you with brain health, things that help you with cardiac health, things that help you with joint health, and most important, things that help with your immune system. You know, it's been really interesting that this whole industry in the U.S. has enjoyed this deregulation, which has allowed for a lot of innovation and so forth. And I've actually heard that uh, Big Pharma is looking to get in on the action. Uh, I'm kind of wondering about that. That's sure the way it looks. Uh, this all started really in 1994. There was a congressional act that opened up the industry for supplements and nutraceuticals. And it kind of told the FDA to stay out of this business, except in the case of where something is clearly toxic. And what seems to have happened more recently as this industry has exploded is that pharma wants to get a piece of the action because right now, because it's unregulated, there's a whole lot of small business innovators and they're driving really amazing improvements in the technologies associated with supplements. But pharma is now trying to act through various Congress people to get the act amended to put more regulations back in because that's what pharma knows how to do is to work within a highly regulated environment and in many ways, it's kind of anti-competitive, but that's how they run their business. Well, I think that's all the time we have for this week. So see you next week on Fallout. Fallout.